if you turn your Bibles to the book of Haggai, Haggai is the third from the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the gospel here this morning in the book of Haggai and some ways we see the gospel proclaimed through the prophet Haggai. Then next week we're going to be looking at the Christmas story, but we're going to be focusing on uh, Christmas as revealed in Micah chapter 5 and compare that with Matthew chapter 2 as we look at a little town called Bethlehem. And so that's kind of what we're going to be doing then uh, after that we're going to look at a couple more Old Testament passages but kind of with a different flavor. Uh, and then we'll be, Lord willing, beginning our series going through First John. So looking forward to, to doing that. And this morning we're looking at the book of Haggai as I mentioned already. Also, just want to reiterate what Seth said earlier. If you've not been baptized and have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd love to talk with you about that. You can contact the church office, and we get a time to get together between now and uh, January 5th for our baptismal service. But here we are in Haggai. And Haggai is a, a book written after the people of Israel have come out of exile and are beginning the process of rebuilding the temple. We'll talk more about that as we go on this morning, but uh, let's look at verses 1 through 9 of Haggai chapter 2 as God calls the people to rebuild the temple and confronts some of their discouragement. So if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Haggai chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 9, reading from the English Standard Version. And actually, I'm going to begin just a little bit at the end of chapter 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all of the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Father, we do pray for our encouragement, for our edification. I, I pray this morning for those who are discouraged, who are contemplating just the, the difficulties in life, and give them your peace, not a superficial peace, but a, but a peace that comes through faith in your son Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. A question that I've been asking myself as I've been going through Haggai and looking at Haggai chapter 2 this week is whether or not discouragement is a sin. 
Is it a sin to feel discouraged? And a couple thoughts that I've had as I've kind of pondered that question as looking at Haggai chapter 2. One is that it, it kind of depends on how you define discouragement. If you define discouragement as just kind of feeling sad, then of course there are times when discouragement isn't sinful. If you define discouragement as just kind of feeling down, then you have a friend who's in the hospital and you think about the situation that he's in, and you feel kind of sad about that. You say, well, I feel discouraged, and you use the, the word discouraged in that sense. Well, of course that's not in and of itself sinful. But it if you define it a different way, and, and if you describe discouragement sometimes in the terms of, of what causes discouragement and how that discouragement manifests itself, then discouragement can be sinful. And what's happening here in Haggai chapter 2 is that the people that Haggai is addressing are looking at other people and comparing themselves with others, and as they make that comparison, there's a, a sense of discontentment, and discouragement results from that discontentment, and then that's a sinful cause of discouragement, and then that discouragement manifests itself in a sinful way as well, as they, they stop doing what God has told them to do. So it's caused by comparison, and then it manifests itself in disobedience as they refuse to do what God has called them to do. And so here in Haggai chapter 2, discouragement, this type of discouragement is sinful. I tried to think of examples of this type of discouragement in my life, and I found out something as I thought through these examples. As you describe what it is that you look at in other people's lives and get discouraged about in your own, it reveals a lot about yourself, so much so that I felt very uncomfortable sharing some of the things about myself, and so I decided to pick some examples from your lives. No, I, I thought I'd share a couple, but I'm, gonna, like, I'm just going to give a little bit, okay? Because seriously, this, this is a very, uh, I've been surprised at how transparent uh, you have to be in order to, to describe what discourages you as you look at other people. You're, you're saying a lot about yourself as you say what you see in others that discourages you about your own life. So let me just give you a little bit of an example that's a little transparent, but, but not too transparent. In, I think it was March of 2011, my a book was about to be published the next month, and I was, I was just so excited about the book on orphan care ministry being published. And it was about, maybe it was two weeks away, and I, I can remember I was, I was uh, traveling somewhere, I was getting up in the morning, and I, I checked my emails on my cell phone, and one of the emails that was on my cell phone was from Amazon.com. And it, it said, you know, books recommended for you, and then it said, I kind of read a blurb, and it talked about this exciting new orphan care ministry book coming out in two weeks. And I thought for a second it was talking about mine. And then I kept reading it and thought, oh man, this is a book that sounds very similar to mine, but it's not by me. And I read this book and I read all the people that were endorsed, read about the book, read all the people that were endorsing and saw all that the publisher was doing to promote the book. And what happened in my, in my heart? I got a little bit discouraged. Instead of thinking about the exciting thing that was happening in, in my life, I looked at, at a similar thing in other people's lives and and I got discouraged. I got kind of, kind of down. Why? Because I'm looking at, at other people. So instead of being content with where God has me and, and the ministry he's called me to, I'm looking at other ministries and, and getting kind of discouraged. And in fact, that's been, frankly, a repeating theme in my life. If you're going to analyze the things that discourage Daniel Bennett, oftentimes you would see that what's happening in my heart is that I'm looking at other people, I'm looking at other ministries, 
and seeing aspects of them that I wish were true of my own ministry, and the result is sometimes discouragement. Not very attractive, right? Not a very attractive aspect of my personality, of my, of my makeup, of my sinful, sinful behavior. Does the gospel offer any hope for me? The good news is yes. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, even as it's proclaimed through Haggai, offers me and it offers you hope. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I, I am not the only person in this room who struggled with comparison. There have been times in your life where you have, have found yourself in a situation and you look at someone else in a different situation and say, I, I wish that was true about me. I, I see my coworker and the accolades that my coworker is receiving, I wish that was me. I see this person in this position and I wish I had that position. I, I hear about this great vacation that another person took, another family took, and I wish, I wish that was my family on that vacation. I hear about the great house that someone else lives in, or I, I see it, I wish that was my house. I, I, I look at other people, you do this, you look at other people, and you see where they're at, what they have, and it causes you discouragement. The gospel answer that we see in the book of Haggai is to turn our eyes away from looking at others and making all these different comparisons, and to turn our hope and our focus instead toward Christ, toward our Redeemer. We're going to talk about what that looks like as we go through the book of Haggai. We're going to see these gospel truths regarding the cause and the cure for discouragement in Haggai. Not all different types of discouragement, but the type of discouragement that's described here in the book of Haggai. Okay, and so if you're there in the book of Haggai, good job. You've made it. Uh, let, me, let me give you a little bit of context what's taking place as we come to chapter 2. If you remember, before we've talked about the different historical books, remember we talked about 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and, and all of those books uh, dealt with the, the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. There was King Saul, then King David, King Solomon, and then after King Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and then all the rest of the books kind of describe what takes place in the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is carried away into captivity in the 8th century B.C., and then in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom is carried away into exile. In about 539 BC, by, by the Babylonians, in about 539 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire comes and conquers Babylon, and, and the new king, King Cyrus, tells the people of Israel that they can return to Jerusalem. And that's, that decree is issued about 538 B.C., 537 B.C., the remnant kind of begins to return to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, we see this described in Ezra chapter 3. In Ezra chapter 3, we see that the people of Israel begin the process of rebuilding the temple. And they begin that process of rebuilding the temple in about 536. And, and here's what happens. Again, this is 536 B.C. The people have been in Babylon. They've been in captivity. Cyrus says you can go back. And so a group of people leave and come back to Jerusalem, and they begin rebuilding the temple. And verse 10 of Ezra 3 says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests in their vestments 
came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And so there is excitement, there is joy as the foundation is laid, and they, they see that the worship of God is going to be able to continue when the temple is completed. That's 536. Well, as that takes place, not everyone is excited about rebuilding the temple. And some opposition, we see it in Ezra chapter 4, takes place to the rebuilding of the temple. And as the opposition takes place, the people are discouraged. And from 536 to 530, 30 B.C., there's this, this time of, of wrangling about whether or not they have the legal authority to rebuild the temple. And then from 530 to 520 B.C., nothing else happens in the temple. And that brings us to the, the first point I want us to consider as we, we think about discouragement, and that's the cause of discouragement. The cause of discouragement we see here in chapter 2 is looking at others. And we see this in verses 1 through 3 of Haggai chapter 2. And what's happened in Haggai chapter 1, this is 520 B.C., work on the temple has not really done anything in the last 16 years, since the, and then the temple was destroyed in 586, and so we're, we're talking about a period of over 60 years in which things have, have not continued. And in Haggai chapter 1, Haggai comes to the people. He comes to Zerubbabel, who's part of the descendants of David, legitimate king. He talks not just to Zerubbabel, but to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. And then he talks to all the remnant of the people. And, and in Haggai chapter 1, he tells them, look, get off your backsides and, and get to work. He says this, that's a loose translation, uh, verse 4 it says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled homes while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. And that phrase, consider your ways, literally means put your heart on the road. Like, consider carefully the path that you're traveling. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You found that your life hasn't had the satisfaction you thought it would. And, and part of the reason for that is that you've been disobedient in this area of the temple of rebuilding what God has told you to rebuild. And so Haggai stirs up the people, and, and they, they listen to what Haggai is saying to do. And at the end of chapter 1, we see that the people begin to obey. It says in verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And in verse 15, look at this. Notice the time. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And so this would be kind of around September, okay? Now we come to chapter 2. Same year, and look at the time on this. It's the 21st day of the month, the seventh month, so one month later. It was on the 24th, the sixth month, and now it's the 21st. So not quite a month. And the people, even though they began this project with great excitement, 
a little less than a month ago, now their fervor's waning a bit. And so, once again, Haggai is told to talk to three groups of people. He's to talk to Zerubbabel, he's to talk to Joshua, and he's to talk to all the remnant of the people, three groups of people there. Now, if you know your Jewish calendar, you would know that this, this date, and, and literally this is, uh, we believe, October 17th, 520 B.C., because he's so specific with which month it is, what year it is. October 17th, 520 B.C., this would have been a day that was part of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Deuteronomy describes what's supposed to be taking place in this feast. It says, you keep this feast... Uh, the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands, so you'll be altogether joyful. And so this is supposed to be a time of joy. And yet, it's not. The people are not joyful. What's taken place in this, in this month, what's, what's taken place in their lives, it's caused them to not be joyful about what God has called them to do. Well, well think about it this way. It's very interesting. This morning, the distance between Haggai chapter 1 and Haggai chapter 2 is about the exact same dif- di- di- distance between us and November 17th, okay, the day the tornado struck. You can imagine that the people get excited about this project that God has called them to do, and, and, and then the difficulty of the project begins to set in. The enormity of, of all that is before them begins to set in. And here's how Haggai describes their discouragement in verse 3. Listen very carefully to what he says, because it, it gives us a window into the hearts of these people. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, here's what's taking place. The temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. Now we're in 520 B.C. Most of the people who are engaged in this work are people who were either born after the exile ended, but, but most of them were probably people who were in the exile born in the exile. So there are people, the people who are actually going to the side of the temple and trying to clear away all the rubble during this month are people who've never actually seen the temple. All they're seeing are the leftover pieces of the temple as they clear away the rubble. They've heard stories about the temple. They've heard the legends of the temple. You know, Psalm 138 is a song that was sung while they were in exile. And so thinking about the temple is something that's continued to be done even while people were in exile. So people who are born in exile, people who come back out of exile, they know the stories of the temple. They know how magnificent the temple was. They see evidence of how magnificent the temple was. But there are some people who know what the temple looks like. These are probably people who are not doing most of the physical work. They would have been people in their 70s. And so they're not actually probably clearing away, they're not picking up the big stuff and and starting to to lay out all the materials that they're going to use. They're just kind of watching. And they're saying things like this. I remember the temple. I was five years old when it was destroyed. Oh, that was a magnificent structure. It was a beautiful structure. 
I, and I heard from my grandfather, he, he saw it even in, in more glory before the Babylonians began to take things away. He saw all the, the things that were part of the temple, and oh, it was a beautiful structure. This isn't that great. Boy, you guys do not have much to work with. Oh, but boy, it used to be something to look at. I mean, think about it. The temple had been built by Solomon. Solomon was the, the wealthiest king of his day. He had access to, to any resource that he would desire. And, and you, you read the, the, about the construction of the temple and, and all the resources that Solomon devoted to the building of this temple. And now you've got a bunch of guys who've been in exile coming out. And, and the, we know from Haggai chapter 1, they don't have hardly anything. And now they're trying to build a temple. And as they build a temple, they begin this process. They look at their resources. They're discouraged. They're comparing temples. They're comparing what they're about to do with what God has done in the past. And Haggai calls them out on it. He knows exactly what they're thinking. Doesn't this look like nothing? As you compare what this temple was before and you look at what it is now, isn't it it's kind of dinky? It's, it's, it's like nothing. The people are so discouraged that, that their, work, their work wanes. Haggai gets to the heart of their discontent, the heart of their discouragement. The result of their contemplation thus far is to compare their temple to the previous temple. Or, 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 you know, it's interesting, he doesn't say previous temple. He says, who saw this house in its former glory? In other words, even though the previous temple was destroyed, he sees this new temple as part of that same house. It's this house at one time, this house in the present time. He's going to talk about this house in the future. It's all the same temple in Haggai's mind. But as... He looks at their hearts. He says, I understand. God understands. You're discouraged. You're discouraged because you're looking at others. When I was in high school, I had a very prestigious job at a cafeteria. I was drink boy. I think that was my official title, drink boy. Uh, Luby's Cafeteria in, in, in Grapevine, Texas. My job was to get the drinks, hence the name, Drink Boy. And it, it sounds easy, but I had to make sure that I had the right ratio of iced tea and iced water and empty ice glasses if people wanted soft drinks. I needed to make sure that the, okay, it was simple, but still, um, you know, I, I enjoyed my job at first. You know, I had been in another job and this this was a step up from that, and so I'm, I'm kind of thinking I've, I've arrived in the world. But my friend worked at Luby's Cafeteria as well, and my friend, he was meat boy. Okay, I was drink, but he was meat boy, and that was very prestigious. He was in charge of cutting the roast beef and, and serving up the chicken, and, and you know that's the main entree in the meal, and so his job was more prestigious than mine, and so I began to feel a little bit discouraged, and he didn't help. He liked to discourage me as well, and so I, I felt like I'm, I'm, I'm this lowly person. Here's this, he's the meat boy, and I'm just drink boy. 
instead of being content in my, in my position, I, I felt a sense of discouragement as I considered what other people had, the prestige of my friend. And it wasn't until, you know, years later where I thought, wow, that was ridiculous. Who cares? We were both working in a, in a, in a cafeteria where we weren't treated all that well by our managers. That should have been what really concerned us. Instead of being content with the task God had given me at the time, I began looking at other people. And I wish I could tell you that that silliness has ceased in my life. It continued in college. You say, well, Daniel, surely it didn't continue in ministry. I mean, surely you're not a temple comparer. Surely you don't look at your ministry and compare it with others. I think I've already clued you in that I do. There was a time where someone came. I was talking to a, a staff person who, who works at a, a mega church here in the United States. I mean, you know, tens of thousands of people go there, and they were talking to me. They're very close friends with the, the, the pa- a very prominent, famous pastor of this church. And uh, this, this woman who was on staff at that church looked at me, and she said, uh, Daniel, I just want you to know that our pastor loves your little church. Thanks. Appreciate that. Super. Someone else was talking to me, a person who, who goes to a, a, a bigger church, and, and they said, hey, look, anytime someone wants a little church to go to, we recommend Bethany to them. Thanks. Who cares, right? Part of my heart, though, I don't want to be known as a, I, I don't want you to, th- it's okay if I think of myself as a little, I don't want you to call me little. You know? What is that? silliness. I'm looking at others and I'm evaluating my ministry based upon what others have or how others perceive me. It's, it's the same silliness as drink boy versus meat boy. It is. It's all God's church. And the differences that we have and the different roles that God has called us to are, are, are so minuscule it's, it's, it's pitiful. Is discouragement a sin? Well, again, it, it depends on what, what causes it and how it manifests itself. And, and uh, many of you, I would argue, are struggling with sinful discouragement. You're discouraged because your family doesn't look the way that you want it to look. You look at some other family and you want your family to look that way. You are in some financial stress and you look at someone else who's not in financial stress and you say, boy, I, I want that and, and why hasn't God given me that? Or, and, and this, is, this is funny too, you You've imag- there's an imaginary version of you that you're jealous of. There's like this imaginary you, and, and this imaginary you's getting all this prestige and, and getting all the accolades that you think the real you deserves, and so you look at imaginary you, you're looking at that other, and you're discontent and you're discouraged. And here in the book of Haggai, this discouragement leads to disobedience, and the same is true in your life. As you are discouraged, it's for sinful reasons, and it's manifesting itself in sin. By not engaging with joy the ministry that God has called you to. The cause for the discouragement in Haggai is looking at others. What's the cure? Let's look at the cure. The cure for discouragement is looking at Christ, at looking at the Redeemer. Look at verse 4. Here's what the Lord says. Yet now, be strong. And again, he goes to these three groups of people, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all you people of the land. 
Here's the instruction, verse 4. He doesn't say, he doesn't say hey, I understand. This is going to be a dinky te- temple. Don't worry about it. He says, no, toughen up. Be strong. Buck up. And work. <laughs> work. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. You're out looking at other people, and instead of, you should be looking to me and realizing I'm with you, I'm, I, I'm, I'm present with you, and he's going to describe his presence with them in the past, the present, and the future. First, the past. I'm with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. That's a very important thing to understand. What he's saying is the covenant with God still stands. God's redemptive plan to to bless all people through Israel, through the descendants of Abraham, has not ceased. That plan is still a go. We're still on track. The covenant promises that I've made in the past still stand, says the Lord. Now he goes to the present in verse 5. The the same covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, that, that same deliverance, that was with you when he came out of Egypt, is now that same deliverance that's with you as you come out of exile. Now the present tense, my spirit remains in your midst. Right now, at this moment, I'm, I'm still with you. I, I'm still uh, your God. We're still in a covenant relationship. Therefore, fear not. And now he goes to the future, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. What is the cure for discouragement here? The first part of the the cure for discouragement is, is to understand and process rightly what you're looking at as you look at other people. There's going to be this moment where, where God shakes things, he tells Haggai. And in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6, it says, God stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations, and then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And as God, and, and here in Haggai, shakes the nations, what happens? And it's like, uh, picking up one of my kids after they've been to the store and holding them upside down and shaking them, what happens? The, the, the coins come out of their pockets. Not that I've ever tried that. but You just shake a, shake a, shake a, shake a, coin, 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 coin. God picks up a nation, shake a, shake a, shake a, and the coins come out. He's got that power. What's the point? What's the point? The point is, God owns it all. And if God wants the people of Israel to have a little more money, a little more resources, what does he do? Shake, shake, shake. Pick up a nation. Shake, shake, shake. Pick up some of those resources. Shake, shake, shake. There it is. God owns everything. Uh, Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 60, verse 8, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. God owns it all. You say, what's the point? How does this help me in my discouragement? Okay, stay with me. 
Remember what we said is the cause of discouragement? It's, it's looking at others. I look at others and I, I see the house that they have. I, I look at others and I see the prestige that they have. And I, I see the, the prominence that their ministry has. I, I look at someone else and I, I see the, the fame or the, the, the way that other people look at them. I, I look at someone else and I see the friends that they have. Or I see a friend that I thought I had. And I see them doing something with someone else. And they're saying, oh man, I wish I thought we were closer. I thought they'd be doing that with me. And there's discouragement as I look, I look, I look, I look. Who owns all those things you're looking at? God owns them. What is the implication? The implication is, as you look at those other things, everything you're looking at, if God wanted you to have it, you'd have it. If God wanted you to have that house, shake a shake a shake you got the house. If God wanted you to, to have that prominence in your job, shake, 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 you've got it. If God wanted you to have that, that uh, relationship with, with someone, that, to, to marry that person, what, how hard is that for God? Shake, 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 you got it. God wanted, whatever God wants you to have, you will have. My dad, one time, maybe he said this on several occasions, he says, a good Calvinist, person who believes in the sovereignty of God, only has to play the lottery once. And I would argue, a good Calvinist never has to play the lottery at all. God will give you what God wants you to have. Now, of course, I'm not, not saying just sit around and wait for God to do But the, the point is this. As you find yourself in the situation that God has you, there should be a sense of contentment and trust in the Lord. And as we have a sense of discontentment and discouragement sets in, what is happening? We are saying, God, I am not content with where you've placed me. I think your plan is wrong. I say this to myself. So the first step in, in turning our eyes to God is, is to look rightly at the things that are around us and not see these things as, as things that we're discouraged that we don't have and say, you know what, all those things are God's. All those ministries are God's. All that prominence is God's. All, the other fam- all that stuff is God's. And if God desires me to have that, I will have it. That's step one, to, to recognize that all those things aren't ours anyway. There aren't things to be coveted. And then the second step is to turn our eyes toward God. And here's verse 9. Here's verse 9, key verse. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, he's looking to the future. And he's talking about how this, this temple that they're building right now is going to be a prominent temple. They're worried about its comparison with the past, looking at others and seeing what God's in. Look at the present. They're concerned. God says, no, 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 don't, don't worry about all that. This present, by the way, this, this present temple is going to have glory in the future beyond even the temple in the past. Now, how is that fulfilled? Well, in, in one sense, we know that that building literally becomes a very beautiful building. Look at Jesus talking to his disciples. Remember in Mark chapter 13, now this is that the temple after Herod has, has come in and, and renovated it extensively, but the temples will look, will look, um, the temple will look amazing. The disciples will say to Jesus, and for example, in Mark 13, 1, uh, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. 
And so there's that sense in which this is fulfilled. But there's something more that's going on here that points to a redeemer, that points to the way. In, in fact, look at verse 9 again. It says, in this place, I will give peace. Um, I will give shalom, declares the Lord of hosts. And, and how is that peace going to, to come about? Haggai doesn't quite understand. He doesn't fully understand how this peace is going to take place. But there's a couple things that he does understand that he reveals to us that points to the importance of Jesus Christ. One thing is, Haggai understands that somehow Zerubbabel is important. Remember, Zerubbabel is this descendant of David. He's part of that Davidic covenant, the promise that, that God has given the people of Israel that there's going to be this eternal kingdom established, and a descendant of David is going to be the one who brings this kingdom about. And so Habakkuk, or Haggai understands that. You come to the end of Haggai, and he, and he talks about the permanence of this kingdom that's going to be going to be established by Zerubbabel, but Zerubbabel is a representative of that eternal Davidic king. And so Haggai understands that this peace that's going to be brought about by this temple is, is somehow going to be brought about by the work of a descendant of David, that the Davidic covenant is going to be crucial to establishing this. And, and he understands that this peace that's going to become is going to be a, a peace that, that's part of an eternal kingdom. It's part of a kingdom that that won't ever fade. There's a, a permanent kingdom that, that we see that you know, at the end of Haggai, again, he talks about how he's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the, the, the strength of kingdoms and riders and chariots. And, and yet, this descendant of David is going to reign over an eternal kingdom. You come to the book of Hebrews, and we see this as well, this, this kingdom that cannot be shaken, that comes about through, the, through Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, he says in Hebrews 12, 24. And then he says... Um, See that you not refuse him who's speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Let us be grateful, he says in verse 28, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." Haggai gets that. He's pointing the people to, to look away from others and look to God and understand that God is establishing this eternal kingdom and he's establishing it through a descendant of David. That's the gospel. The good news that the kingdoms of this earth are, are passing away and we're pursuing a, a heavenly kingdom. And so as we live on earth, we're, we're working to begin to establish this, this kingdom of God the hearts of people and have it manifest in their lives. But there's something deeper about the temple that Haggai doesn't fully understand. You know, First Peter will talk about how the, the prophets, as they prophesied, didn't understand everything they were prophesying. They didn't understand that the fullness of, of, of what it meant as they talked about the sufferings of the Christ and the glories to follow. And turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we, we see the fullness of what the temple pointed to as we look at the person of Jesus Christ and, and how we participate in this shalom and this peace. And, and it's kind of interesting here at Christmas, we're talking about peace on earth and goodwill to men. And, and we don't mean it in a biblical sense. We kind of mean this, hey, let's be nice to each other. Let's get along. And, and, we, and we just see that the, the complete 
inability that we have to enter into that type of peace, but the, the peace that God describes is different. It's not just this absence of hostility. It's this creation of, of shalom, of, of oneness in relationship, and it's all found in the person of Jesus. Haggai doesn't totally understand it, but here's what we see as we understand the gospel more in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember, this is verse 11, those of you who are Gentiles, verse 12, remember you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our what? Our peace, who has broken us, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, that's through Jesus, everyone, we, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, prophets like Haggai, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and here it is, in whom the whole structure, it's the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles and Cardinals fans and Cubs fans, and everybody. The whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Haggai didn't understand the fullness of his message. He understood the he understood the role of the Davidic king. He understood the, the, this, this new kingdom. He didn't understand the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't understand the, the, the central role of this Davidic king, of the person of Jesus Christ. Here it is, church. You and I have no right to be looking at other people and getting discouraged because of discontentment. Whatever it is you're looking at in someone else's life, if that's not in your life, the reason it's not there is because God says, no, not, not, not for you. That's mine. I choose not to give it to you. Stop looking at that stuff. And instead, look to me. Look to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And as you come to faith in Jesus Christ and experience the redemption by Jesus Christ through your faith in him alone, you are now brought into this, this, this temple where, where peace exists, where there can be shalom, there can be this, this, this peace of relationships, this, this harmony. And, and as we, we come together as the body of Christ, not looking at each other and, and, and upset at what, what one person has and the other person has, but instead looking to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, there's this joy and this peace as we come together so that God is worshipped in our midst. I am with you, declares the Lord to Haggai. I am with you, says God through Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 to the church. The church 
those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ have no business being discouraged because of discontentment. We are called by God through the work of the Holy Spirit to be a temple. 